Well, hey, thank you. It is uh, actually, I know you've heard this probably from every guest speaker, but it is a genuine, heartfelt privilege and honor and joy to be a part of your gathering today. I know you've probably heard this every week from guest speakers, but you need to know as a congregation, you are uh, one of the most catalytic, influential churches in America. You guys have shaped the way that literally hundreds and thousands of church leaders think about what we call church. And in particular, the idea of of reproduction, that every follower of Jesus can be a reproducing follower of Jesus, that we should reproduce at every level. And you guys are literally changing the definition of church, going from a more kind of organized institutional form of church to church as a movement. And you're helping lots of churches rethink that. And I know that doesn't happen without sacrifice on your part. So as one church leader who's been profoundly affected by that, Thank you. You need to know this is a church that makes hell tremble, and that is cool. You are a dangerous church. So just go ahead and look at your neighbor and say, you look dangerous to me. Go ahead and tell him. You look dangerous to me. And whenever there's an environment of danger, sometimes it's helpful to have a warning, right? You know, have you ever seen uh, every product you get now has a warning on it? And if you read these warnings, you can quickly perceive a couple things. The people who created the products think we have an IQ of zero, all right? And secondly, they assume we're going to sue them, and we probably will. And and I want to show you some actual product warnings, okay? These are legit. This is actually from Forbes magazine. I didn't make these up. Uh, These are some warnings, okay? Uh, Here's the first one. This is from uh, Vidal Sassoon. At the bottom of the box, it actually says... Do not use while sleeping. Really? Are there large numbers of people grooming themselves while comatose? (laughs) Okay, here's another one on the Razor scooter. It says this. This product moves when used. Thus the word scoot. Okay? Here's another one. Superman. This is legit. There is a warning on the inside of this costume. It says this. Wearing of this garment does not allow children to fly. <laughs> Get up there, Johnny, and prove them wrong. <laughs> and here's the last one. This is actually my favorite one. This is from Scrubbing Bubbles Toilet Brush. Do not use for personal hygiene. I only made that mistake once. It was painful. I I won't won't go into it. Now, in this series, The Lake Effect, uh, you've been on this journey with Jesus along the lakeside. And uh, I actually grew up in the Chicagoland area, and it's been beautiful to step back along the lakeside. My wife and I sat by Lake Michigan yesterday in Hyde Park. And you've been on this trip. You've gone back in time to sit with the Lord Jesus along the lakeside. And today, as this series wraps up, It wraps up with a warning from Jesus. And unlike these ridiculous warnings, this is a warning you'll actually want to heed. It's from the smartest man who ever lived. It's of critical importance. It is of ultimate importance. It's a warning that literally the flourishing of your very soul rides upon you heeding it. So let's look at this warning together. What's the warning label that Jesus... uh, Actually, he repeats it twice. Well, it might surprise you. It might not be what you expect. If you have a Bible or you're bringing it up on your phone, uh, you can go to Matthew 16. 
And uh, Matthew 16, verse 6 says this. Here's Jesus' warning. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Is that clear? Okay, let's pray and go home. Now, this is a bit coded for us. What does that even mean? And if you feel a little confused, if it seems a little bit irrelevant, don't worry, because Jesus' early disciples, his followers, pretty much felt exactly the same way. They did not get this warning. So let's look at the context, okay, for this warning. Matthew 16, verses 5 through 7, it says this. Later, after they crossed to the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered they had forgotten to bring bread. Now, it doesn't seem like a big deal in our culture, but when they were going to get where they're going, there wasn't a Walmart, there wasn't a 7-Eleven. So they don't have provisions, basically. They're going to be hungry. That's what they're concerned about. And Jesus says these words, watch out! Exclamation point. Watch out! He warned them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they, speaking of the disciples, began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. In other words, they start blaming each other. You forgot the bread, Peter! They literally have an argument about wonder, rye, and pumpernickel. It goes right over their head. You know, if there was an Aramaic word for doofus, I'm sure Jesus would have been using it on these guys. Because they don't get it. It starts an argument, and you can hear the exasperation in Jesus' voice. Let's continue with verse 8. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, You have so little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with what? Loaves of what? Bread. And the baskets of leftovers you picked up? In other words, there was more than enough. Or the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves and the large baskets of leftovers you picked up. Why can't you understand that I am not talking about bread? In other words, he's like, it is a metaphor. I use them all the time. Right? And then he says again for the second time. So again, I say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So if we're going to... Uh, decode this we've got to do some contextual work so in Judaism at the time the Pharisees and the Sadducees were two different camps Uh, you can almost think of it as a continuum you know in the political situation in America you've got your right wing and your left wing right and then there's sort of a continuum in between in Judaism, in the first century, uh, there was a lot of nuances. It was, it was complex. There were multiple parties, just like there's multiple political parties here today. But the two big camps, the two defining points is you got to get right or you got to get left. And there were the Pharisees, and they were at the conservative end of the continuum. And then you had the Sadducees, and they were more at the liberal end of the continuum. And so Jesus is saying, beware of the yeast. In other words, the yeast is... You know, this substance you put into the dough and a chemical reaction takes place and little pockets of CO2 begin to rise up, right? And he's saying the teaching of the Sadducees and the Pharisees will infect you and begin to transform you. Watch out! It's a critical warning about what you could call two religious impulses. 
two types of religious impulses that are, are they're transcultural. They're operating inside of me and you right here, right now. And Jesus says, watch out. These two religious impulses, which will actually feel right to you, are the two things that can actually blind you to the thing that God wants to do to free you and cause your soul to flourish. This is serious stuff. So what what are these teachings? Well, the Pharisees, uh, they had 613 rules. There was 248 about what you were supposed to do, and then 365 about what you were not supposed to do. Imagine managing that many rules. Some of you are saying, welcome to the policy handbook at my workplace. (laughs) And, And that's what life was. It was about Okay, I have to appease God. I have to strive. I have to earn his approval. You could call this moralism. In other words, there are moral hoops that I need to jump through. And if if I jump through these, then I will earn God's favor, God's approval, God's blessing. And so I'm constantly earning. I'm constantly striving. And if you had to come up with another metaphor for it, uh, we'll put it up on the screens. You could use a Stairmaster, <laughs> okay? Has anyone ever used one of these? Come on, hands up, quick survey. Yep. It's exhausting. Why would you do that to yourself? And see, that's what moralism is. It's this constant I'm earning, striving, earning, striving, earning, striving, earning, striving. Why? So that God will approve of me. That I can build some kind of bridge between God and myself through my moralistic effort, you know, kind of pulling myself up by my bootstraps morally. The other end of the continuum here is the Sadducees. And uh, their take on these 613 rules is, uh uh-uh. No. Uh, We're not going to accept that. In fact, each person in our estimation needs to define for themselves their interpretation of the scripture. Now, there's been a lot of different expressions of this um, mentality, you know, throughout the centuries. But one way you could summarize it is with the word uh, relativism. In other words, I'm not going to accept an outside authority. I am the ultimate authority. And I will define what I think is right and what I think is wrong. And you can decide what you think is right and what you think is wrong. And then we'll all have our own sets of right and wrong. And don't tread on me and I won't tread on you. But I'm the ultimate authority. And if you had to come up with another metaphor for this, it could be uh, the lounge chair. In other words, it's like, hey, just relax, man. Okay? Take it easy. We're all basically good people here. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. And and don't get, like, all hot and bothered. Don't talk to me about sin or don't talk to me about what you think is wrong in my life. And these are very deep religious impulses inside of us. We have them both working inside of us. Right here, right now. And Jesus says, watch out. Because they feel right. They feel spiritual. But they will literally blind you to the most important truth 
that Jesus came to reveal to us. It is literally the opposite of Jesus' thinking. And see, we are in a, a culture that does a lot of binary thinking, all right? It's like either this or this. It's either this or this. You pick one or the other. And Jesus is saying, we got to get out of binary thinking. There's actually a third way. And I came to show it to you. But before we talk about what that is, let me ask you, which one of these do you lean towards? Which one of these religious impulses is strongest inside of you? I have a degree in psychology. And what's interesting is these religious impulses have become clinical diagnosis. And, and psychologists talk about there are neurotics and then there's personality disorder. So if you're neurotic, that means you tend to internalize the guilt. So look at your neighbor for a moment and say, you look neurotic to me. Just tell them. You look a little neurotic to me. In other words, you, you feel guilty about everything and then you feel guilty about feeling guilty. And then you feel guilty about the weather. Somehow it's your fault. The traffic jam, it's your fault. The Cubs losing, it's your fault. You can never fix that, trust me. Go White Sox. I know, I'm in a, I know, I know. So are you neurotic? Do you tend to internalize the guilt and the shame? You're kind of a performance junkie. And you're just wondering, is it ever good enough? The other label that psychologists use is personality disorder. And these are people externalize blame. In other words, you don't feel guilty when you should feel guilty. So look at your neighbor and say, you look guilty to me. Tell them. <laughs> you look guilty to me. Now, what's interesting is they seem like they're opposites, right? I don't know if you're neurotic or your personality disorder. But if you get down to the crux of it, if you get down to what's actually beneath both of these, it's the same thing. It's the question of, am I good enough? Now, there's two different answers to that question. One of them is religious. The other one is relax. But they're both about answering this question. And you know what's really beneath that is self-sufficiency. This is a method of spirituality where it is on me. I am self-sufficient. And my answer might be relax. My, my answer might be religion. But I am the ultimate authority. And at the crux, at the core, it's this question, am I good enough? And I'm still trying to answer that question, what, through my own personal efforts? Self-sufficiency. And that's why they both lead to the same trap. And literally, the flourishing of your very soul is riding on it. And if you say neither one of these is at work in your life, then you really do need to get some clinical help. Because <laughs> they are. And you probably tend to lean towards one. I know for me, I tend to lean towards the, the uh, neurotic end of things. I grew up in a big B Baptist church, and we did have a lot of rules about a lot of things. And as a young man, I decided I was going to work the rules and work the system. And I wanted to be uh, radically dedicated to Jesus and my particular faith community's definition of that. And it wasn't until I was uh, actually, I went off to a Christian university, Taylor University, and my freshman year, they brought in a speaker for a week of meetings. And it, he was a former Roman Catholic priest, of all people. And as a big B Baptist, it's like, ooh, is that okay? You know? 
And he talked about this idea of healing our image of God. And the first day he used a four-letter word that literally changed forever my image of God. It wasn't a cuss word, if you're wondering. It was the word A-B-B-A, Abba. And he wasn't talking about the disco band. He was talking about a, a name for God that Jesus introduced. And see, in English, you know, kids start speaking, what, 12 to 24 months, and the first word out of their mouths is what? Da, 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 da. I'm sorry, ladies, it's not fair. It's not right. <laughs> it should be mama, but it's usually what? Da, 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 da. And in Jesus' context, he spoke Aramaic. The first words out of an Aramaic baby's mouth were ah, ah, abba. And Brandon talked about this God who is holy and just, the uncreated creator, who is totally other, who will judge the living and the dead. Jesus was teaching us to pray to him and to approach him with baby talk, with the relentless uh, affectionate trust of a two-year-old who's running toward their father saying what? Dada! And that night led to what I would affectionately call my second conversion. It was a grace awakening. And I realized for the first time that night that I was on this Stairmaster. And I had been my whole life. And that I was constantly striving and earning God's approval through my, you know, intense religious effort and my moralism and it just for the first time I would have told you oh God loves me but for the first time instead of a spiritual concept it became an experiential reality and it was like an atom bomb went off inside of me like just the exhaustion of all that moralism for the first time lifted off of me and I was so dumbstruck, literally, I couldn't move. I was sitting up in the balcony, and everyone else had cleared out, and I was just sitting there basking in this awareness of God's love that I had never experienced before. And the janitor was literally shutting off the lights, and he, he was like, are you all right? I'm like, he's like, I'm leaving, you know, very caring individual. And since then, over the last 20 years, it's like God's been rewiring me. Like detoxing me. It's, I, I've, you know, it's so tempting to have our identity grounded in, in our performance. And, and it's a lifelong conversion. But that's my propensity. You know, the other one is this whole idea of relativism. And if you lean there, there there's what feels like freedom. It feels like freedom. It sounds like freedom. But what, what you actually miss is the opportunity to know what it means to be forgiven. To be a prisoner who's been set free. To be someone with a terminal health condition and to be healed and made whole. When I, I say that I am the definer of what's right and wrong, it's actually a very arrogant thing. It's where I'm looking at God and basically saying, no, I'm God. Here's God who created everything. He holds it all like an atom in the palm of his hand. And I'm standing right there going, I'm God. Why? Because I'm the one who's going to define what's right and wrong, not you. And there's a really unbelievable arrogance in that if you think about it. 
So I want you to listen to the words of Jesus. I, I wonder if you've been able to identify kind of where you're at on this continuum. And if you're a Stairmaster person, listen to these words. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. What Jesus is talking about here is a way out of this system. And there's only one way out, and it's this word grace. That it's not about me being good enough. I can't be religious enough. I can't be smart enough. I can't be fast enough. I can't be strong enough. I can't be good enough. In fact, that's why Jesus came. He came to lift that burden off of you. And through his life and his death and his resurrection... He's taking all the burden of our brokenness and all the burden of our sin and all the burden of our pride and literally all the brokenness of all the corrupt systems in the world and he's sucking them into himself like a sponge and he's becoming a substitute. He's breaking the yoke of moralism so you can stand up straight and know that you are loved, that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. And that grace is a sheer gift. It can't be earned. So if you're a Stairmaster person, it's time to stop believing in your good enough via moralism. And it's time to accept the gift. And if, if you're... You know, at the Sadducee end of the continuum, if it's kind of a lounge chair spirituality for you, I want you to listen to these words. It says this in Isaiah chapter 1. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Let us settle the matter. Are you God or is he God? Who's actually ultimate reality? Who actually defines what's right and wrong? He says, let's settle the matter. I am. And though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And Isaiah 53 says, we all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. In other words, we have a debt before a holy God. Jesus said, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. In other words, you know, in this room, probably most of us have financial debt, Right? You have a financial debt, mortgage, college debt, credit card debt. Imagine if someone walked into your life right now, and with one check, they wiped it all out. How would you feel? You would kiss that person on the lips. That's what you would do. You would hug them. You would put them up on your shoulders. There would be this profound sense of freedom. Our national debt is, what, $18 trillion, works out to about $150,000 per taxpayer. And what Jesus is saying is you have a spiritual debt that actually makes your financial debt look insignificant. And guess what? Grace. Grace pays the bills and the joy and the freedom and the life that you would feel if someone wiped out your financial debt, it actually can be nothing compared to the spiritual experience you could have if you would admit your debt and receive grace because grace pays the bills. So here's what it comes down to. Here's the warning. 
Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Be wary of moralism. Beware of relativism because these are not a foundation that will hold. They'll, it, literally, it, it, will, it will crumble. If you set the weight of your soul and your life and your identity on either one of these, it will crumble. And some of you are profoundly aware of it. You can feel the foundation crumbling right now. My wife and I, for our 15th anniversary, we went to uh, Puerto Vallarta. Is that how you pronounce it? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just murdering that one. But it's this beautiful resort town on the Pacific side of Mexico. And we were strolling along the beach one night, and we walked a long ways, and we came around this bend, and we saw something that was shocking and ridiculous. I'll never forget it. I can still see it like in 1080 HD in my mind. There were these, I think what were intended to be world-class condominiums. They'd been built right on the shoreline, but they weren't finished. In fact, it was just the concrete shell, and those condominiums were literally cracked in half. They'd been built on the shoreline, and the sand had receded, and they literally snapped in half. So it was these buildings that were just cracked and hanging over this cliff. Because they built on the wrong foundation. And listen to these words of Jesus. Anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. And when rain and floods come and the winds beat against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of trying to build your life on the foundation of good enough because it won't hold. But Jesus says this, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock and grace is the only foundation that will hold. And you can make that exchange today. And I wanna invite you, if you will, to bow your heads with me And I ask you to have the courage right now to see which image, the Stairmaster or the lounge chair, is primary inside of you. And now you can make this prayer your own. Lord Jesus, I want to repent. I want to turn from my particular expression of self-sufficiency, my particular way of answering the question, am I good enough? Lord, I give up. And now I open my hands to you. And Lord, I ask for the sheer gift of grace that I may know with confidence that I am who you say I am, that I am not the accumulation of my performance or the opinions of others that I am by grace your beloved son or daughter. And Lord, I also repent of my pride where I would stand before you and uh, court the idea of this illusion that somehow we are equals, that I could tell you 
or teach you anything when you are my creator and you've designed me. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves before you and pray that you would teach us how to live because, Jesus, you're the smartest man who ever lived and you are the master at the art of living. And when we obey you, it's actually freedom. So we thank you now, Lord. And we receive grace as a gift. And we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.